Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. I think some people wake up you know, in the morning thinking, you know, what, what can I do good mm. today? And, you know, I want to be, I want to be surrounding myself with those people as much as possible. Uh, and those people, quite frankly, you'll find them everywhere. Mm. You know, you'll find them at, at BP, you'll find them at Shell, you'll find them in the gas companies, you'll find them in the electric utilities. Uh, you'll find them in our shop. You'll find them in environmental groups. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who really, who really are driven to, to do good and maybe didn't see a lot of opportunity to do good until recently. And increasingly, I think, you know, the role of business is, is giving people that opportunity, is, is creating that, that possibility so that people don't have to wake up and say, you know, you know, here's who I am, but now I'm going to go to work and put that, put that in a box and pretend otherwise, because that's what I have to do to make a living for my family. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and those wise words come from Philippe Dunsky the founder and president of Dunsky Energy Consulting, who believes good businesses create possibilities for change. And in this episode, Dunsky shares his forecast for the renewable energy transition, how to avoid a binary view of the world, and that you cannot lead without love. So without further interruption, may I introduce to you episode 199 with the real Philippe Dunsky. Enjoy. April 30th, and right now, folks, for $195, $400 off, you can apply your impact company for the Impact Awards, where you'll receive tons of traffic to your website, Uh, You'll have good brand engagement, uh, as well as great opportunities to connect and collaborate with the other impact winning companies. So if that's you, you're an impact organization, go on over to realears.com slash impact dash awards dash application and register your company today for the impact awards. But with that being said, folks, let's get this show on the road here. Here we go now in five, four. Three, two, and one, and welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Philippe Dunsky, the president of Dunsky Energy Consulting and also an advocate for clean energy. Philippe, thanks for being with us today. It's great being with you. I've been listening to your podcast for a while. I love I love everyone I listen to, so it's an honor to be with you. Well, thanks for being on. And, you know, I was just telling people that are here with us on Crowdcast, for those listening out there, I've taken a little hiatus 
And I got to ask you, have you ever taken a hiatus from your work or stepped back from it or just taken a break for a while? I did. I did. Actually, I took a hiatus uh, from my previous job, took off for two months, went traveled in, uh, in Asia mm. and, uh, you know, got a lot of perspective out of that. It's good to take a break. Interesting. Yeah. I've been, I've been feeling like more of a, I felt like I was kind of getting burnt out a little bit. Felt I had a lot of pressure, but then, you know, with taking such a long break, it's almost made me crave it more. So I'm excited to get into this episode today, Philippe, and I appreciate you being here. Now, tell us a little bit about Dunsky, you know, the origin of how you started and you know, why it's in existence today. Well, I guess, um, uh, you know, my origin, I, I tell everyone, I'm an environmentalist at my core. I always have been. Uh, and, you know, I started getting into energy issues back in 1990, 1991. I was doing some environmental education in 1990 and kind of understood that, you know, when you get right down to it, if you think of climate change, if you think about just most environmental issues, they're all about energy. And energy is, is the backbone of our environmental problems. It's also the backbone of our, of our economies and, and a lot of the good things that happen. So, you know, I decided to focus in on, on energy back then, uh, but I also, also quickly realized that, um, you know, if you're going to be a really good activist, you need to see things in black and white. And, and that wasn't who I was. I was not good at that. I, I, I'm a guy who lives in, in the world of grays, right? In the world of, you know, there are real, real trade-offs and, um, and I'm an analytical guy as well. So, you know, I eventually learned I needed to leave that behind and, and take on more of an analytical approach to this. So, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up founding a think tank focused on energy and the environment. I ran that for eight years. And then 17 years ago now, uh, founded my company, which originally was just supposed to be me. Uh, you know, putting out my shingles and, and doing some work, but, you know, it's grown over time and we're now a team of about 40 amazing people. Uh, and, you know, what we do is we have a single mission and the mission is to accelerate the clean energy transition. Uh, it's, it's heartfelt. It's heartfelt for me and for everyone on my team and for my partners. Uh, and that's, that's what we're all about. Interesting. Well, congratulations on that, uh, Philippe. And uh, you mentioned trade-offs mentioning maybe more of an analytical guy. Explain to our audience what you mean by trade-offs when it comes to clean energy or environmental products. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, if you think of energy, right, um, everything that we, pretty much everything that we do today, pretty much our entire economies are built on a foundation of energy. Right. You know, industrial revolution, go back 150 years ago. Why did that happen? Because of energy, because we figured out how to how to burn coal, basically. So, you know, energy has been at the source of a lot of environmental problems. It's at the source of of the climate change that is, you know, that is literally threatening, uh, you know, threatening the health of this planet. Uh, but it's also honestly been at the at the forefront of again, of our economies of, you know, millions upon millions of jobs. I mean, you know, if it weren't for energy, you know, we'd be, we'd be either, uh, you know, doing hard, hard labor in the fields or, or, or you know, scouring for berries and, and hunting our food right now. Um, so you, you just, you can't, you can't just say, you know, we're going to shut it off mm. and, and not, uh, you know, not accept the fact that, there are millions upon millions of livelihoods that, that depend on this uh, and, and, you know, entire economies that, that depend on it. So you gotta, if we want to do this and we want to do it well, and we want to do it fast, you know, we've got to take into account all the interests that are involved here and there are many and they're deep. Mm. And that makes sense to me because this, my computer, my house, my utilities right now powered by coal, my car powered by gasoline, you know, from oil. We, so we're talking about oil here. We're talking about uh, natural gas. We're talking about coal. We're talking about solar, wind. For the adoption of solar to take place, what is your role in that and how do you see the transition going? So, so we, as a firm, uh, we work for... 
pretty much anyone, when I say anyone, it's, you know, to a large extent, it's been governments and it's been utilities that have a mandate to clean up, you know, clean up their act, let's say, or clean up, uh, you know, reduce the, the impact from providing energy services to, to people and businesses. Mm-hmm. So our clients will come to us and they'll say, look, let's say I'm the state of Massachusetts, you know, they'll come to us and they'll say, you know, we want more solar. So first off, tell us how much more solar is possible in this state. Second of all, how much is it going to cost? Third off, what are the trade-offs? And then once we've figured all that out and we've quantified all that, and we use, you know, we have a lot of modeling uh, that, that supports that work. Then the next stage is, all right, now, how do we make it happen? Mm. You know, it's one thing to, to, you know, for a governor to get up and, and say, hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, I want solar to be 20% of my, my power grid in, in whatever year, but then you got to make it happen. So we design, you know, we used to, and we still do, we used to talk about designing programs and policies to make that happen at scale. So we, we do that. And increasingly, we talk about designing go-to-market strategies, you know, even to help uh, you know, new solar developers or to help utilities that, that say, hey, I want to get into the solar game because you know, my future is not in coal. My future is in solar or my future is in wind or my future is in uh, you know, helping, helping customers save energy. So we'll work with them to help them figure out how do I make this happen? How do I move the needle uh, quickly, effectively, and, and in a way that actually aligns with business models, even if it means rethinking those business models too. Interesting. So in this example with like a municipality or governments, how did it, like, what are some of the policy changes that you've seen, or at least maybe you projected that could really have a profound impact in terms of the adoption of solar in a specific state or the, their boundaries? Well, the amazing thing with solar is that a lot of what happened there actually happened years ago. And it happened with major and honestly, major, you know, government money that was put into R&D that actually helped to uh, help to, you know, drive costs down, uh, raise there's there are government policies that, that were there to help encourage adoption. Uh, you know, some some government policies that required uh, markets, for example, to reserve a, a small share, even just a small fraction of sales to solar power. So utilities sometimes were required to make sure that, let's say, even 1% of their sales were actually provided by solar as opposed to by coal or or gas, just as an example. That little 1% represented an enormous growth in solar production. That drove innovation. That drove scale. And 10 years later, and I say 10 years because, I mean, this has been going on for a long time, but in the past 10 years alone, you know, the cost of solar has actually dropped about 85 to 90 percent, mm. which is just extraordinary. So, you know, when I started out in this business, I remember one of my very first consulting contracts. Uh, I'm going back 1993 or 94, something like that, was to forecast the cost of solar. Mm. I would never have, fo- have forecasted it dropping as low as it is today. Mm. So today, solar is in a totally different place than than it was 10 years ago. And it's actually competing, increasingly it's competing on its own against coal, against gas, uh, against other resources. Interesting. So there's a couple of things going on in my head right now, uh, Philippe. Like the first one is, you know, is it too radical to say that the cost of solar will ever be less than, uh, you know, petroleum or just any type of uh, fossil fuel? And then the other parts are going on through my head right now is like, gosh, you know, this is taking a, you're really a group effort. Like you need municipalities, you need businesses, you need people to buy in. So that's a whole nother, you know, like when we talk about adoption, like trust is a big issue there. Um, and so let's just start first on that, on that, on the first note, is it a, a rational idea to say that at one point solar energy will be cost less than fossil fuels? So solar energy today costs less than fossil fuels in a whole bunch of places, not everywhere, right? Depends on the resource. But if you look in California right now, it's cheaper to, to put up a, what we call a solar farm, um, you know, a farm of solar panels than it is to build a new gas plant. 
that's that's today. Now, you know, this is where again, I you know, go back to what I was saying before. It's easy. That's kind of the headline version. Then you get into the the nitty gritty right. and, yeah. and the trade offs, and you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, you know, solar works really well when the sun's out and really poorly at night. So, you know, whereas a gas plant, you can turn it on whenever you want, whenever there's a demand for power. So they're not exactly comparable, hmm. but big picture solar is, is, you know, very competitive in some places with very with lots of sun, uh, and is getting a lot closer and very quickly, even in the places that don't, hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm up in Canada and in Canada, there are places where solar, I wouldn't say is competitive today. But we do the forecasting and, you know, most of our forecasting says within 10 years, solar is going to be probably, if not, if not cheaper than wind, because wind is actually really cheap now too, uh, but probably cheaper than buying power from the grid in, you know, something like half the provinces. Hmm. So, you know, big changes happen. So is that where we're starting then in terms of this transition is in the grid? It's in the infrastructure versus complementary uh, products like, you know, electric vehicles or anything like that to power those. I, um, I, I feel like we don't really have time to be starting with one and doing things in sequence. So, you know, we're, we've, if we're going to win this race and, and we're in a race, mm. right? If we're going to win this race, we have to do everything on all cylinders right now. And so that means, yeah, we got to clean up the grid and, you know, there's tremendous progress has been made on that. Uh, and, and I fully expect that within, you know, within call it uh, 10 to 15 years, the vast majority of North America's grid will be emissions free, mm. right? Currently, you know, Canada's grid is over 80% emissions free right now. The U.S. is is further behind, but Biden just announced major plans to uh, to make it totally emissions free by 2035. So you know that's that's going to happen, and we're going to have clean power. Right, all of our power is going to be clean, uh, whether it's from solar or wind. It's going to be a lot of wind involved there. There's going to be you know the existing hydro, the existing nuclear. Don't think we're going to build any more of that, but it's going to be there. Uh, there's going to be a lot of batteries out there to store you know the sun that shines during the day but not at night so we're gonna have a very different grid mm. in 10 to 15 years from now but that's that's grid side and that all that means is that we've got clean electrons to feed our needs but the next thing we have to do is actually use those electrons instead of say burning oil in in our cars or you know burning uh, coal or gas in our heavy industries, hmm. for example. So that's that's the next thing that has to happen. Interesting, interesting. So there's kind of two forces or signals that I'm keying on here. One is when you take a look at like a solar farm or a solar community. You know, it's it's a it's a higher cost up front, but I believe long term it will start to pay like you money. So after like a 30 years of, of being on this grid and using the energy from these solar farms, you'll basically continue to get discounts and premiums on your utility bills. And then once it hits that 30 year limit, it'll be paid off. Like that whole loan will be paid off, it'll be financed. And therefore your cost of that utility will go down. So that's a long-term commitment. Then the other second thing is to have a long-term commitment mindset where you'll be paying potentially more and then in the long term, it takes one for the human to understand that. And then two, there's so many different factors. Like you mentioned, there's governance, there's the for-profit sector, there's the, the homeowners, the landowners, the people that are making those decisions. So what does it take for <laughs> the human, the human being to understand these principles and make that step forward toward that transition? You know, I, I used to work with a guy who headed, um, he headed a great organization that's sole purpose was to help people save energy. And he used to say, the only way we're going to be successful is if we make saving energy easier than doing nothing. And I, you know, I take that to heart. I mean, I, you know, I believe that we all, as humans, we need to do a bit of a mind shift. You know, we need to 
to think differently uh, about about the environment, about our about our consumption. But totally honest, I'm not going to rely on that. Right. So you know where we work is you, know, you, you made a really good point, right? You know, not everyone, um, not certainly most people don't have, you know, tens of thousands of dollars sitting around unused in their bank account, ready to, you know, buy solar panels to put on the roofs, just to take that example. So this stuff is capital intensive. By definition, if we're not burning fuel, you know, day after day, year after year, or 20 years, instead, we're buying a piece of equipment up front and then paying nothing for the next 20. So it's capital intensive. So what does that mean? It means that we need to work with lenders, right? We need to get lenders to be providing lower cost capital and to be providing capital that is, uh, that comes with terms that really fit neatly with what renewables or with what energy efficiency looks like from a consumer standpoint. Mm. So, you know, I think it's a great, it's a great example. My firm, we just finished work with uh, an infrastructure bank, um, putting together a, a $2 billion loan program that is, uh, that is there to provide capital to building owners, basically property owners, uh, who want to invest in retrofitting their buildings to reduce energy consumption okay. and, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And you know that's the kind of thing that we need to do is really scale up the amount of capital that's being driven toward these solutions. Okay. And there's, there's different forms of those loans. I forget what the first loan is. Uh, we did an episode on that, but there are different ways to finance your buildings with these incredibly low rates for your loans. It's just these long-term commitments and, um, yeah. interesting. So yeah. it, let's talk if you're about thinking, like, yeah, go for it. I was gonna say, if you're thinking homeowners and, and frankly, even commercial buildings, there's something that started out actually started in California called pace. pace that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Pace yeah okay. Uh, that's a great example, right? I mean, someone that, you know, someone decided to innovate on the financing side and said, hey, you know, instead of asking people to go out and, and either use their own cash or go to a bank and, you know, try to try to borrow money, uh, you know, what if what if we can lend people money through their municipal tax rolls? Mm. So they don't actually have to go and do anything. Just make it really easy. You know, you pay your municipal taxes, you know, year after year <laughs> forever, right? right. So, you know, what if we, what if we put the, the loan on the municipal tax roll and just roll it into that? Mm. Uh, it de-risks things for lenders because everyone knows that, you know, people pay their property taxes a lot more than anything else. Right. So lenders can then come in with much cheaper capital and, and that makes it much more interesting for consumers. That started in California and, you know, my firm is actually deeply involved in, in, in looking at how that, you know, how that. It's working and, and how to make it better in California. And, and then many years ago, you know, I was a little frustrated, frankly, to be working on this in California and not having that happen at home. Mm. And so we started working on bringing that to Canada. And, uh, and just, just this past year, God, not even a year ago, uh, Canada just launched its, its, launched its first ever PACE program mm. uh, that really is going to apply to pretty much any municipality across the country. Uh, and that program again was one that, that my firm designed. So it's, it's, it's a, it's just another tool in the toolbox to make this stuff happen faster. Right. And I think what we're talking about are like the headwinds of these things. How do we create change really far up the ladder that can you know have ripple effects throughout the economy? And I, I think about this and I think about kind of what the main polluters are in terms of these large corporations uh let's think about all the distribution that is going on in the world when you start to think about how the infrastructure of solar will change self-reliancy is very interesting let's think 90 years out 100 years out and everyone's relying on their own solar. what do you think that's going to do to local businesses and the reason i ask that is because if distribution costs are continuing to rise if we just except the fact that there could potentially be a carbon tax. What do you think that's going to do for local economies in terms of self-reliancy, building the infrastructure, all that good stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, and, and by the way, I, th I think you're from California. Yeah. Right. So, so some of the stuff that you're talking about is, is kind of unique to California where you have distribution costs kind of going up yes. and up and up. Uh, 
and and to in a sense that's unique to California. In a sense, California is a bit of a bellwether here for for others, uh, canary and coal mine, if you will. So, you know, we we do see that happening more and more as as people decide to you know to reduce their reliance on the grid. Um, you know, that puts utilities in a tough spot, and they still have to recoup their their sunken costs. Mm. Uh, and so they have to increase their rates and, and it creates what we call a death spiral. Okay. So death spiral for the utilities. Um, and that's a little bit what's happening uh, in California now. Now, if if you jump forward, you know, you said 90, 100 years from now. Long time. Um, I, I'll tell you, we're going to, I mean, you don't even have to jump 90, 100 years. Uh, you jump 20 years from now and we're going to be in a very, very different situation than we've known uh, over the past, you know, 50 or 60, uh, you're going to have a lot of people who are, to your point, producing their own power. It's, it's still going to be a reasonably small share of the market because utilities are smart. They're figuring out how to, how to make this happen, how to provide clean power themselves. But you're going to have more and more people uh, providing their own, more businesses providing their own, uh, more private sector parties coming in saying, hey, I can... I can provide you with, uh, you know, with something to manage your consumption that makes, you know, that makes you money. Mm. I can come in and put a solar panel on your roof and battery in your garage, and I will own and operate it, and I'll sell that power back to the utility and make money off of it. So there's, there's all sorts of business models that are coming. But, but to your point, you know, what does that mean for local economies? It means a lot. I mean, we're, you know, we are talking about um, to a certain degree, localizing some of the money that used to flow out of communities, mm. right? So there's definitely, you, you're definitely talking about spreading some of the, some of the financial flows, uh, actually not spreading, keeping them closer to home. Uh, of course, there's a, there's a corollary to that. Again, coming back to trade-offs, there are a lot of communities right now that rely on a big power plant yes. that they were built around, right? Or a coal mine or et cetera. And, you know, and truth is they're gonna be hit hard. And, and we need to we need to think, you know, really hard about how we how we do this in a way that's that's fair to those communities and doesn't leave them um, you know, hit too hard. That's an interesting point because I saw like, you know, BP, Beyond Petroleum, right? Like this major greenwashing campaign and and not that I, I don't know anyone at BP, obviously. I'm sure they're just normal human beings, but acting in their self-interest, I guess. But um, they, you know, invest billions of dollars in this new plant. And I'm here and, you know, kind of, okay, well, it costs less to set up a solar farm. But when you think about a solar farm and a billion dollar plant with, you know, drills and things... I'm interested. What's like, is it, is it even close in terms of the amount of money that we could provide and the amount of jobs that we could provide from a solar farm versus a, a big, you know, oil rig or drill or fossil fuel plant? Sure. I mean, it's, you know, fundamentally we're, we're getting to the point where, where all these solutions are crossing over, right? We're getting to the point where it's, um, it's becoming, you know, as, as cheap or cheaper to um, you know to build and operate renewable plants as it is as it used to be oil and gas and coal, okay. and so you know capital is following that. And you know if you listen at all to um, uh, Larry Fink, for example, the CEO of BlackRock, mm. I mean you know he's he's been very clear you know where the future lies and where risk lies increasingly. And, you know, he's directing BlackRock to really take a hard look when, you know, when we're investing going forward, what are the, what are the, you know, we call it carbon risks, right? If I'm, if I'm thinking of investing capital into a new, uh, a new oil well, you know, a new uh, oil sands project, a new gas, a coal mine, you know, forget it, the risks are enormous. So, you know, that's being accounted for increasingly. And we're seeing, you know, quite literally, I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars shifting away from fossil economy and into the, you know, the renewable energy economy. Mm -hmm. and, and I should say, when I say renewable energy, we've been talking about solar a lot. Um, again, I think, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, California and, and Texas and some of the southern U.S. states, um, 
that matters a lot. But uh, but it's not just solar, right? It's 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 wind, uh, it's battery storage, it's you know eventually there's going to be hydrogen uh, involved, um, and then you get into some of the some of the tougher and more complex stuff, the you know some of the chemical solutions that that are going to be a big part of this as well. So hmm. it's it's a big complex messy system, but you know we're talking about literally transforming the single biggest part of the economy of the past 150 years. And we're talking about doing that in the span of a couple of decades. So it's going to be a lot of change. And you almost also made a good point. You said, you know, 18 years I was doing modeling on the cost of solar and never did I think it was going to be you know, down 80%. So if I'm a business owner listening to this, just a business leader in general listening to this, what do I need to know? about the future of business and how I should be thinking about running my organization? That's a great question. I mean, and, and it's really tough, right? And of course, it depends what kind of business you are. So, you know, there are, let me take a couple of different examples or different shots of that. Uh, one is, let's say a business, you know, any, any large corporate that's not directly in, in, in energy. Increasingly, um, your your emissions profile is going to be a factor in your competitiveness globally. Mm. So you know countries are now talking about something called a, a carbon border adjustment, which is basically just a way of saying a carbon tax on imports, right? Depending on the emissions factors uh, or you know the emissions profile of the country that the product came from. Mm. So if I'm a company now and I'm trying to figure out where to build my next factory. I'm looking for places, I'm looking for countries, provinces, states where, you know, power is already as clean as possible uh, and where overall the energy system is as clean as possible. And that's going to be a really important part of my competitive advantage. Hmm. Uh, so that that's kind of on that side. Now, if you're an energy company, especially if you're a traditional energy company, that's where the stakes are, are even bigger and, and tougher. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, we've been working uh, in the past year, we've been working with a couple of gas utilities. Right? Their entire business is selling a fossil fuel that we burn and that, you know, emits into the atmosphere. So we've been working with a couple of utilities that are very, um, very clear eyed, look at the future, uh, look 10, 20 years down the road and say, you know, we're not going to be in business. Mm. We're not going to be in business. There's no way if we just try to stick to what, what's always worked for us, we're going to be out because there is a historic transformation that's underway now. So how do we change our business model? You know, we, we thought of, a, of ourselves as, as gas utilities. In fact, all we really do is own pipes. We own pipes and we help people heat their homes and we help businesses, you know, heat their, heat their buildings. Uh, so how do we do that in a way that doesn't necessarily emit carbon or that emits a lot less? Mm -hmm. So we're working with those utilities to rethink their, their business models, uh, to rethink, you know, the kind of services that they provide to customers and ultimately to, to ultimately to position themselves as companies that sell heat, right. That sell services to people, uh, that use the pipes to get that heat over there, but that doesn't have to be a fossil fuel. It could be other things. And that's the kind of thinking that's happening now in the energy world. So if that's the type of thinking that needs to happen, hey, this is, this is what I see on the outside. We're really going to have to take into consideration our carbon dioxide emissions, measure them. How do I now implement that into my culture, into my organization to ensure that we're dedicated to these principles and that everyone understands them very clearly, what would you do in a situation or any advice that you have? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is it's got to start from the top, right? Like every, like every culture change, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's gotta be brought in from the top, ideally, right? Mm -hmm. Where that's possible. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that's happening now in some of the larger uh, corporates is that, that there's movement around carbon disclosure. Right. And, and basically saying, look, you know, any company needs to understand everyone is exposed in some way or another. Every company 
emits carbon somewhere in their value chain, whether upstream or downstream. And if you don't know what that is, you're in trouble, you're vulnerable, mm. right? So first thing to do is understand where am I emitting? Where in my value chain is that, are, that, are those emissions coming from? And the second thing is figure out, well, just how vulnerable am I? So there's, there's something called um, uh, it's the TCFD, the Task Force for, what is it? Climate Financial Disclosure, I think it's called. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> this is like, the, you know, this is the financial world. Right, right. Uh, it's come together and led by former governor of the Bank of, um, of England, who's also former governor of the Bank of Canada, and, and said, you know, going forward, companies should, you know, like I said, measure their emissions, then think, well, if the world is to reduce emissions on, at the pace and on the schedule that, you know, that let's say the Paris Agreement says is needed, and let's say I as a company need to do that, what does that mean to my business? How, how vulnerable, how exposed is my business to dramatic cuts in carbon emissions? And from there, the next level, of course, is, all right, how do I, if, if that's my risk, if that's my exposure, what do I need to, re, to do to rethink my business model, to rethink my market position in a way that's gonna make me part of the solution and not exposed as being part of the problem. Hmm. So that's happening increasingly. And frankly, that's one of the, that's one of the most innovative things that's happened in the past 10 years in climate is, is just getting businesses to think about that in a very serious way. And those analyses actually happen at the very top level. And that's, that's interesting as well. Interesting. So I'm curious, cause this is out of my wheelhouse, but like what, when it comes to like the pressures of applying you implying a business asking a business layer to measure their carbon emissions that pressure where is it coming from is it coming from the lenders like that the bankers is it coming from investors is it coming from social pressures and how do you feel morally about business leaders saying you know we're not going to do x for you if you don't do you know follow our lead with measuring your carbon emissions like how do you feel about that morally um I, I think that, uh, well, first of all, coming back to the, you know, the first part of your question, yeah, uh, it's, it's coming from everywhere now, right? Like it, it used to come from a few activists, right? It used mm -hmm. to come from the odd, you know, a, a protest uh, here and there. Uh, now it's coming from the largest lenders in the world, right? BlackRock being a great example, uh, but also that, you know, there's an a new initiative that, uh, that was just formed maybe a, a couple of weeks ago, I think it is. Uh, that's pulling together something like $7 trillion in capital lenders who are saying, you know, going forward, we are going to be paying attention to carbon. We are not going to be lending to companies that are carbon exposed. Mm -hmm. So a lot of pressure coming from that, a lot of pressure coming from governments, and a lot of pressure now coming from consumers who are increasingly saying, you know, this, this is my future. And when I say consumers, honestly, it's, it's a lot more the younger generation who've, you know, they've internalized this, they understand that this is their future. This is not, it's not, a, you know, another small issue to think about. It's existential. Mm. And, you know, I think increasingly as we understand that this is existential, this is literally about this tiny little blue dot, blue ball that we, that we all call home. Um, you know, the pressure is coming from all quarters. And, and what I've been seeing in the past, even in the past couple of years uh, is, is just light years more pressure than what ever existed, you know, in the past, you know, in the 30 years prior to that. So what does the world look like then, Philippe, in 20 years, you said, 20, 30 years? What does it look like? Do we see an actual change? Uh, are there any projections that can affirm that, you know, climate reductions and storms and all the the headwinds that contribute to climate change are actually going to change our species, going to decrease and dying off. Like, what does the world look like in twenty years if we do this? Well, first of all, I wish I knew. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I wish I knew. All I all I all I can do is uh, is look at scenarios, right? And you know, the scenarios are are varied. I mean, yeah. Here's what I'd say: is that there 
one of the things I, I dislike a lot is a kind of binary view of the world. You know, it's like, you know, either we're going to save the world or, you know, we're all going to die in a ball of sure. explosion or whatever, you know, that's, that's not it. Right. So we've, we've created a lot of damage, a lot of damage uh, and some of it uh, very hard to reverse damage to the atmosphere in particular. I mean, the atmosphere is not something that you easily, you know, you can't just replant. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of long-term damage that's already been put up there. Uh, what we're trying to do now is, is accelerate the change. We know the change is happening, right? I, I can say with certainty that in a hundred years from now, we will not be consuming, you know, we'll be consuming at least 95% uh, less, sorry, not, I shouldn't say consuming, we will be emitting 95% less into the atmosphere than we are today. Hmm. That I know with a certainty. What I want is for that to happen, not in 100 years from now, and not in 50 years from now, but in 20. Mm. And because that's the kind of race that we're in, right? Because we can't afford to keep putting, you know, just throwing, spewing the stuff up into the atmosphere for another 100. If, if that's the case, our planet looks, it looks very different. I don't even want to think about what that looks like because, because I have seen the projections and, and it's ugly as hell, right? I mean, you just think of coastlines. I mean, the coastlines are gone. For one, um, and and you know, my God, like ocean oceans are destroyed uh, just from the effect of global warming on 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 very delicate balance um, in oceans. Uh, it's just it's an awful awful situation. You're talking about not just things like forest fires like we're seeing today in California. You're talking about you know mass um, mass population displacements. I mean mass mass population displacements, refugees. Uh, you know, in, in ways that we've, you know, we haven't seen pretty much ever. So, you know, we don't, I don't want to dwell on that. What I want to dwell on is how can we speed the change to limit the, um, to limit the impacts, right? And limit the change that's happening to the environment in a way that the environment can better handle. Because the environment's an amazing thing, right? It, you know, it self-corrects, it adjusts, it, you know, the species move, but a species can't move, you know, 5,000 kilometers in the span of a few years. It can do that in the span of, you know, several hundred or thousands of years. Mm. Uh, and, and that's why we need to slow down the change to let species, let the environment, and frankly, let humans adapt accordingly. Do you think it will get to that point where coastlines start to creep in and people are, well, are suddenly realizing that, you know, we need to start making these changes before this happens again to another coastline. Cause I just think that's the scariest thing about climate change is like, it's already happening in so many different places around the world yet. We're still continuing, you know, to do the same things that we do. Obviously people are making change, but do you think that, you know, coastline change will be the first of the chain of reactions? Actually, I think the first of the chain of reactions is, is uh, that, that a lot of us are aware of is the forest fires in California. Mm. You know, I mean, that's that's now an annual thing. Right. And that was not an annual thing before. So, you know, I think that's a great uh, canary in the coal mine to use that expression again. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, sea levels look, sea levels are rising. There's no doubt because we've already spewed some of the so much of the stuff in the atmosphere. There's no avoiding that. Again, what there is avoiding is you know, there's one, it's one thing if coastlines, uh, you know, increase by half a foot and it's another, if they increase by six feet, mm. you know, I mean, and the difference there is, is obviously tens or frankly hundreds of millions of lives. So that's what this is about. You know, when I say a race, it's, it's, it's just trying to slow it down. Uh, so we're talking about six inches, not six feet. And there's something to say about, what you were re referencing earlier about the competitive advantage of implementing uh, this purpose or these uh, measurements into your organization. I think it was also like a Deloitte study that came out. It's like by 2025, 75% of the workforce will be consisted uh, or cons consist of millennials. And I believe 36% of those millennials said the sole purpose of business is to improve society over 35% that said the sole bit purpose of business was to maximize shareholder value. So when it comes to intangibles in an organization and leadership, do you think it's a competitive advantage to instill that purpose and combine the calling of saving our planet within 
ensuing generation that's very environmentally conscious? Yeah, I, I think it's essential. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we've we've gone through. It wasn't always like this, right? And we, you know, we've gone through a, a period now where, you know, maximizing profit has has been, you know, pretty much the sole uh, purpose of the corporation, right? maximizing shareholder returns. And I think we're 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 you know we're coming back. I don't want to say full circle, but we're coming we're coming to a place now increasingly of balance. Where you know the purpose of a corporation is to is to serve a lot of different stakeholders, and yeah, shareholders have to have to find their returns, uh, but that can't be done on the backs of stakeholders. You know, stakeholders have to find their returns as well. Employees, you know, we want employees to be not just to lead happy, productive lives, but also to be really proud of what their what their companies are doing. To view their companies as being part of the solution, not part of the problem. So, you know, it used to be that energy companies were, were, were part of the solution. I mean, they were providing this really important, um, you know, this really important input to, to oil our economies and, and create jobs. And, and that was great. And now, you know, to a large extent, they are part of the problem. Mm -hmm. that, that needs to change. Uh, you know, in my, own, in my own company, I mean, we're, we're resolutely, you know, we could say triple bottom, triple bottom line. I mean, you know, we're very mission driven and, and we, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to, you know, how are we doing? Yeah. Financially, but how are we doing first and foremost with our people? Uh, you know, how are we doing in terms of our, our impact on stakeholders, our impact on the world? Uh, how are we doing with our clients, of course? So, you know, we take that, we take that approach because, you know, if it was just about the short-term gain, I mean, you know, I don't know. Maybe it would work for me. Maybe it wouldn't. But, but it sure wouldn't work for me as a human. And, you know, and I think the same would be true for the for the forty amazing people who work with me. Well, elaborate on that a little bit more for business owners who we said are interested in maybe taking those first steps. What that looks like within your organization, from maybe an HR perspective, employee retention, engagement, productivity. When you have a clear values and mission that are around the environment and social good, what does that do for your employees? Well, first of all, I, I mean, I got to say, I'm, I'm extraordinarily lucky. I have, you know, I just think the most amazing team of people uh, with me. And, you know, and that goes from I, I have a couple of business partners and, you know, and all the way through the organization to everyone in there. Uh, I don't think I would have any one of them on my team, if we weren't the organization that we are, if we didn't have the values that we do, mm. because those are their values too. So, you know, I remember one of my very first employees um, who, who just, we just recently celebrated his 10th year with us. And I remember when he first joined us, you know, I said, so, you know, why, why do you want to come with us? You know, back in the day we were, I think we were five people mm. uh, and, and he came from, from far away. Uh, and he said, you know, I, I I'm an engineer. I, I want to, you know, I want to do good. I want to do work, exciting work, interesting work, but I don't want to spend my days uh, figuring out how to get more oil out of the ground and how to, how to put more, more of the results into the atmosphere. That's it. I just, that's my, my goal right now in my life is to avoid having to do that and to be part of the solution. Uh, and that's what drove him to us. And, and I think that's what drives, like I said, everyone, I mean, everyone from myself and my partners uh, to, you know, my uh, administrative assistant and, uh, you know, and my, uh, my accounting technician, uh, every single person on the team is here because we have a mission and, and we're really proud of that mission. Do you think deep down inside most people had that same calling? That same calling to make a difference, the same calling to affect others, the same calling to leave some type of legacy. I think to differing degrees. You know, I, I I've always hated the idea of talking in averages, right? I, I don't know what the average person does or thinks, but but you know, I think that I think that we've all got that to different degrees. I mean, we all want to be good people, right? No one wants to, you know, go through life and get to the end and, you know have the epitaph, you know, say something like, you know, led an awful life was, you know, was, was an asshole to people. 
I mean, <laughs> you know, people want to be good and want to be understood that way. Um, I think some people give more thought to what that means than others. I think some people wake up you know, in the morning thinking, you know, what, what can I do good mm. today? And, you know, I want to be, I want to be surrounding myself with those people as much as possible. Uh, and those people, quite frankly, you'll find them everywhere. Mm. You know, you'll find them at, at, at BP, you'll find them at Shell, you'll find them in the gas companies, you'll find them in the electric utilities, uh, you'll find them in our shop, you'll find them in environmental groups. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who really, who really are driven to, to do good and maybe didn't see a lot of opportunity to do good until recently. And increasingly, I think, you know, the role of business is, is giving people that opportunity, is, is creating that, that possibility so that people don't have to wake up and say, you know, you know, here's who I am, but now I'm going to go to work and put that, put that in a box and pretend otherwise, because that's what I have to do to make a living for my family, mm, right? right yeah. Increasingly, you know, people can actually align both. And what have you learned from all this? Like you, you started out as this environmental activist and, you know, I remember we were speaking on the phone earlier, Ben and Jerry's was a big inspiration, right? And you decide to use business as an outlet to make and drive this change. Like what have you learned from all this about business and about life and about purpose? Hmm. Um. I mean, I learned a lot, I learned a lot about myself uh, in the process. And, mm. you know, I, I think one of the things I've learned is, is what I said before, it's just, you know, life's short and I don't want to, I don't want to spend my life with people I don't like. So that's the first thing, you know, I'm, I'm really privileged to be able to surround myself with, with people who I, you know, I, I just deeply admire, uh, deeply appreciate, deeply like. I, I was listening to someone the other day. Uh, who said, you know, if you, um, what was the guy who said, you, you can't lead, you can't lead people if you don't love people. And, you know, for me personally, what matters a lot to my success is, is leading people who I really love. And, and that's, you know, that's the case um, in my, in my situation. Other than that, I think, you know, I guess, you know, some of the things I've learned is, is that, you know, people will do amazing work if they if they believe in you, if they believe in what you're doing, if they believe in what they're doing, and if they're you know if they're raised. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the last thing I want to do in in life is take credit for what other people do and you know shove them aside and keep going on. So you know, a lot of this is is how we treat people and give them an opportunity to be part of the solution and and raise them and help them to help them to lead. Uh, to lead the charge. Now, I, I don't do that um, with perfection. You know, I, I have a lot of imperfections, and and uh, and I'm trying to get better at that uh, that side of my job as well. But it's it's a journey. Definitely is a journey. And sometimes, like we start out in the show, you know, I had to take a hiatus. I had to stop. What's kept you going? What's kept you going this whole time? Going through the hardships of running an organization. Uh, you shared some KPIs with us for people listening to this before the show that were KPIs that measured anything but dollar signs. It was about the people in the organization. It was about uh, society. It was about the culture. It was about how they're feeling. It's about the environment. So what specifically has kept this mission going? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's that. You know, Well, I think, first of all, being clear on the mission. Right. And, and, and not backing down and not, not pretending otherwise, you know, we know who we are and we're, you know, we're clear who we are. Uh, I think that's really important. And then, and then putting into practice. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned, uh, we did, uh, obviously, you know, we just strategic planning every, every few years. And uh, I think it's been the last two or three strategic plans we've had now where, you know, we've very deliberately said uh, growth is not a goal. Uh, we have no growth goals in our strategic plan. Uh, you know, we we felt like what we need to focus on is what matters. And so we do have KPIs that we measure, we track, we measure very, very closely how happy our staff are, 
uh, you know, to the extent to which they are, you know, able to lead fulfilling lives outside of work, uh, the extent to which, uh, you know, they have time to do professional development and to grow within the company. You know, we measure those things very carefully. Um, you know, we measure how, how happy our clients are and, and the extent to which they feel like we're doing good work and supporting their good work in accelerating this stuff. Mm. And, and then we measure our contributions to, to the broader, you know, broader society and to the world. Uh, we're a B Corp and, and that's a big part of it as well. Uh, we strive to, to constantly increase or improve our scores on, on the B Corp system, which is a really, really solid system. So, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to that. And, and we said, look, you know, if all of that is working well, then growth and financials will come. And, and they have, and, and you know, we've been growing nonstop, uh, you know, ever since that, ever since the first strategic plan where we said, we're going to not look at growth and not focus on growth, mm. we keep growing, but because it's a byproduct of the focus on, on the more important things. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. It, you know, the intangible, the, the intangibles in your organization are really lean to tangible results without you even trying. It's just like, you're focusing on the employees so much. It seems to result in and growth in the organization without the intention there. It's very unique. Yeah, and again, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle, right? I mean, I'm not perfect in this and the organization is not perfect. And, you know, we have people who, who, you know, raise a hand and say, you know, I, I'm working too much. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm starting to not feel good, right? And so, you know, we just, we try to avoid that and prevent as much as possible. And if never, if when it happens, and we try to adjust real quickly because, you know, we know them, we know their families, we know their kids, we, we care, we care very deeply for them and, and we want them to be, uh, to be good and happy. Well, it's been a very good and happy time with you on this show. Uh, Philippe, appreciate you coming on. Let's bring this home now. You talked a lot about what matters most, leading with love to you, Philippe Dunsky. What is your definition of a real leader? I uh, guess I'd say a, a real leader. Well, you just said a real leader is someone who leads with leads, leads with love for the people uh, for the people they're leading, and and for the purpose uh, that they have, and just keeping the focus on that. That's all. Clear as the mission, Philippe. Appreciate you coming on the show today. We stick around. We have a few questions for you after from all the folks here on Crowdcast today. But for, for Philippe Dunsky, I'm Kevin Edwards, asking you to go out there, lead with love and purpose, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Philippe. Thank you. All right, good people. Wow, thanks for hanging on. That time flew by there real quick. I've got a few questions for you flying in, Philippe. And the first one here is from Allie, and she asks, it's well known that transition in the energy industry will impact poorer people more than richer people, partly because of the increase in the price of energy and the cost of living. California is a good example where you witness a mass exodus of people. It is good to evaluate the incremental costs and risks associated with transition like affordable portability and impact on the And folks, if you want to hear the rest of Philippe's answers, well, you have to be a part of our free community where you can unlock access to live interviews and ask the guests your direct questions after the show. All you have to do is go online to real-leaders.com slash podcast and click on any upcoming interview to attend the show live. I've also placed a few links in the description if you're able to click on them or copy and paste them into your browser. Also, for anyone listening to this on Apple Podcasts like I do, help a leader out and leave us a review and let us know what you liked. I know I'm a podcast listener too and rarely do I leave reviews, but folks, it really does help our ratings out. It helps, these people who come on the show get the traction that they deserve and uh you know who knows ultimately down the line uh it could be helping you out so if you could leave a review on apple Podcasts, let us know what you liked what you thought and how we can improve the show lastly if you have a leader who's driving change in your community please email me directly at b at real-leaders.com that's be at real-leaders.com that's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.
And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real